Okay, so my lips are quite dry. Have to excuse me. If, uh, so the first reading is Zechariah 8, 14 to 17. Uh, reading straight from the book. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Just as I had determined to bring disaster on you and showed no pity when your ancestors angered me, says the Lord Almighty, so now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Do not be afraid. These are the things you are to do. Speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other and do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. Uh, New Testament, Ephesians 4, 11 to 32. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the whole self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God 
the game you. Thanks so much, Jason. Thanks for sharing that uh, wonderful story and testimony of God's work in your life. And thanks for reading too and for emphasising the various places where truth appears. That's, uh, that's a great reading. Uh, I'm not sure if you remember uh, Oprah Winfrey's massively popular 2021 TV interview uh, with Harry and Meghan, Duke and Duchess of Sussex. I'm actually not a huge fan, but my wife, Bron, keeps me in the loop on these things. <laughs> uh, during the interview, uh, the couple, uh, and Meghan in particular, shared significant mental health struggles, feelings of oppression and abandonment. And the couple painted an impression of, of the British royal family as, as a heartless and racist institution that had frequently neglected Meghan's safety and emotional needs. And the interview was polarising. On the one hand, a lot of people praised the couple for bringing mental health struggles and intolerance into open discussion. It was good uh, that people were speaking about these things. But on the other hand, really serious questions were raised about the actual accuracy of their story. Uh, some of their statements were obviously false. So uh, the couple claimed they'd been married secretly by the Archbishop of Canterbury three days before their public ceremony. Uh, and when it was repeatedly pointed out that actually that would have been legally impossible, uh, the couple modified the narrative and reframed it sort of as a private moment. And other elements seem to be misinterpretations, maybe even deliberate spin, people were saying. Uh, the couple suggested that unnamed royal family members had made racist remarks about Meghan, um, and they later accepted an award for saying that. Uh, they, the award praised them for speaking out about racial justice um, in, in that area. But the issue as it emerged seemed to be that one or two royal family members had expressed concerns before the wedding about Meghan's personal character based on her past behaviour. But the couple appears to have interpreted those character concerns through the lens of racial oppression. Now, I'm not here to assess all the details of, of the tales told by these mega-rich stars. That's not what this is for. But it raises a question. Why did this, I guess, celebrity victim story resonate with so many ordinary people? despite multiple issues with the accuracy of the actual story itself. And the clue can be found in an acceptance speech by Oprah three years earlier as she was receiving a Golden Globe Award for lifetime achievement in the media. In her address, Oprah spoke about absolute truth. And she said that is a weapon for victims. She proclaimed to victims that speaking absolute truth, actually what she said was, speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. That's Oprah's understanding of what truth is all about. You, you notice that truth isn't primarily concerned about being committed to accuracy or committed to the facts. That's not what truth is. Truth is about, absolute truth, is about liberating victims. And that's why personal truth, your truth, is so vital for her. That, that vision of truth is precisely what she was seeking to draw out three years later in her interview with Meghan and Harry because the tale they told was their truth. It was a personal story by oppressed victims designed to expose the oppressors, that the powerful and outdated British aristocracy, and empower other victims elsewhere. 
That's what she was doing. What about factual accuracy in the details? But who cares? That, that's not the point. The point is it was true, not because it was factual, but because it was the voice of the oppressed. That is what truth is. And that vision of the power of your truth resonated with millions upon millions. So in his recent autobiography, Spare, uh, Prince Harry takes the same approach to truth. He talks about all the people who've, who've oppressed him. It's a story of, of, of oppression and how he has been um, seriously mistreated in his life by various people, including his own family. And this, right at the start of his book, or chapter two, right at the start, uh, close to the start, he describes his method this way. I'm quoting him directly. He says, whatever the cause, my memory is my memory. It does what it does, gathers and curates as it sees fit, and there's just as much truth in what I remember and how I remember it as there is in so-called objective facts. <laughs> Things like chronology, cause and effect, are often just fables we tell ourselves about the past. And then he goes on and tells his story about how badly he's been treated by all these people and how terrible they are. For Prince Harry, as for Oprah, truth is not ultimately a matter of objective history. It's not important what actually happened. Doesn't matter. In the end, truth is about how he feels, and that's his truth. And nobody can say otherwise. And this vision of your the power of your truth resonates so strongly, doesn't it? Why is that? Well, well one reason is obvious. And that is because there are real victims in our world. Uh, racism is real. And powerful people and powerful groups have committed all sorts of abuse and awful historical atrocities against others. And uh, there are victims, and I know people quite personally who have needed to tell their story about what happened in the face of lies about what happened in, in their own situation. So there is a reality to it. Truth needs to be told to expose the secrets and lies of abusers and move towards justice. And that's very good. But there's another reason why the concept of your truth resonates so strongly with us. And the reason is less obvious. And it stems from some, some basic shared assumptions in our culture and the world that we live in. There are things that we tend to accept without even thinking about them. Uh, many of us just assume that things like being authentic, uh, but being true to yourself is one of the most important things that we can possibly strive for above anything else, above anything objective. Now, actually, for most of the history of the world, the Western world, this focus on the absolute value of individual authenticity, personal, personal truth, actually hasn't been such a big thing for most people. It's been a thing, but it hasn't been the biggest thing. Um, in his book, uh, uh, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, uh, Carl Truman has shown in, in great detail how influential Western thinkers and poets from the last three centuries have actually led us to think in a different way and to assume different things, uh, changed our collective hearts and minds. Now, you might not know, have no idea who the people he talks about are or what they said, but they've still profoundly impacted us because their thinking has been absorbed by, into our culture so much we don't even realise there could be a different way to think. We've picked it up through hearing stories. We've picked it up through 
uh, TV, through movies, through, through pop songs, like all those things. It's, it's just there in our hearts and minds. The stories have taught us by osmosis that this is the way to feel. This is the way to think. And we're, we're like a fish that presumably doesn't uh, notice it's surrounded by water. Uh, so it's worth thinking about it a little bit uh, more, bringing it out into the open. How did it happen? Um, there's a, a critical revolution in our view of ourselves over the last few centuries of Western culture, and I'm talking mainly about Western culture here, has been the dominance of a psychological way of understanding ourselves. Uh, it comes from, from poets and philosophers of the Romantic era. Um, and I'm not, when I talk about Romantic, I'm not talking about love songs, I'm talking about uh, those uh, in, in uh, earlier centuries. And in this view, um, who I am, that is my identity, is all about how I feel inside. So it's not just saying that feelings are important. Of course, feelings and emotions are important, but it's saying more than that. It's saying that my identity, who I am, is about how I feel inside. And it's an individual thing. That is, nobody around me tells me who I am. I know who I am by looking inside and how I feel. So you know that line from the chanting crowd in Monty Python's Life of Brian. We're all individuals. (laughs) Excellent. I'm glad I'm preaching to people who uh, who know Monty Python. How does does this impact our view of truth? It means that things like um, objective truth aren't important and actually can become dangerous. What matters most is your truth. It's your wholeness. It's your story. It's who you are. And the greatest harm then that I could possibly inflict on somebody, what's the worst thing that I could possibly ever do to somebody, and that is to make them feel bad about themselves because our identity is caught up in how I feel. If we think of our identity primarily in terms of our inner feelings, the greatest good is to feel right about ourselves and good about ourselves. That means we have a supreme moral duty to affirm other people's feelings no matter what. And in that view, we actually have to avoid, we have to purge our speech of anything that might harm someone else's feelings of self-worth. It doesn't matter if it's objectively true, what, whatever. What matters is, does it make somebody feel good or bad? That's what matters most. And of course, you know, again, feelings and emotions are good. They're a good thing. They're an essential part of what it means to be human. And of course, we must be compassionate and caring towards people. We must listen to people and hear their feelings. But the, the problem is arising when we see feelings as so absolute, so utterly fundamental to our identity that we can, we must do nothing else other than constantly affirming people's feelings. When that, that issue becomes the absolute overriding moral issue, cancelling out anything else, including objective truth, that's the issue. A second and related issue in our view of ourselves over the last century in Western culture has been the rise of sexuality and gender as core factors in our identity. And again, it wasn't like that uh, for, for, for a very long period of time. But um, Sigmund Freud, the founder of psychoanalysis, has had a huge impact in that area. Uh, before Freud, on average, people didn't necessarily think sexual orientation was at the core of who they actually were. It was a, it was a thing. But since Freud, most of us simply assume, without even questioning it, their identity who we are is fundamentally about our sexuality and sexuality and increasingly now gender is understood psychologically and not biologically. It's primarily about how we feel inside. That means that even if you gently question a person's feelings about gender and sexual desire and seek to say, well, maybe that's you know, it's different, that, 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 that's actually the worst possible thing you could possibly do to them because 
It's attacking the person at the very core of their being. And that is how our world is led to think. You know, so, so if it, when a biological male identifies as a woman or vice versa, any attempt to suggest, well, maybe they may need help or, or love or counsel rather than simply affirmation, any attempt to, to use words that state the biological facts is regarded as violence, and it's called violence at the deepest possible level. And that's why so many people are claiming that J.K. Rowling is a murderer. You know, and, and they are, and they're... they're going online and threatening violent sexual abuse against her. And they're saying that's okay because she's a murderer. Why is she a murderer? Because she, I don't know if you know, you know the, the, what J.K. Rowling's doing, but as, a, as quite a, a strong feminist, she's questioning uh, those who want to identify uh, as, as women uh, for the sake of protecting women. But if you follow the logic of our post-truth world, it makes sense to call J.K. Rowling a murderer because in that logic, to question somebody's feelings about their sexuality or gender is going right to the core of their being. It's making them feel bad about themselves, their very absolute soul, and that's tantamount to murder. Um, other revolutions have profoundly affected our relationship with truth. All of that has then become highly political. Um, so you get the rise of critical theories. Um, everything has to be viewed, no matter what it is, you've got to view it through the lens of race and uh, gender and sexuality. And so that's led to identity politics, where everything's about identifying victims and destroying oppression. Governments, um, you see it now in legislation in Victoria, uh, that may be coming to New South Wales in an even stronger form, uh, believe they now must legislate to protect feelings by criminalising certain kinds of speech and prayer and religious activity. Uh, and it, it looks like it's, it's rising in New South Wales in a stronger form than it was in Victoria. And when such an understanding of identity and politics prevails, truth is often a casualty. You know, so it turns into cancel culture, you know, media, social media campaigns mounted against people with harmful views to destroy them. You've got to destroy individuals' careers and social standing because you're bringing down the oppressor and you're protecting victims, potential victims, from being exposed to harmful ideas that can lead to the mob mentality. But, of course, the reaction against identity politics can end up being even more awful. So TikTok sensation Andrew Tate, he's reacted against cancel culture by promoting his truth. What's his truth? Unashamedly misogynistic and violent views about women. Uh, and you know he's going through all this stuff now. Now with um, uh, lawsuit uh, with, uh, with criminal investigations in uh, where is it Hungary? No, Romania. Wherever he is. Um, all, by August last year, thanks to his Hustlers University scheme for manipulating social media algorithms, clips tagged with his name had reached 1.6 billion views. Pretty influential and horrible. And there's increasing polarisation around these issues. Uh, tribalism, you know, uh, Bernard uh, Keane from Crikey.com has argued that polarisation in Australia is having a corrosive effect on us. This is what he says. The more strongly people identify with a particular party or cause or identity, the more likely they are to reject information that doesn't fit with the preferred narratives associated with those parties, causes or identities. Tribalism abounds all over the place. On all sides, alienated voters turn to politicians who, who, who flagrantly dishonest but appeal to their side 
to feed their victim mentality on both sides. The national landscape divided into warring groups, especially in the US, a little bit more, a little bit less, but still there here in Australia, unwilling to compromise, listen to each other, and compounded by social media. So we feel it's impossible to tolerate other views. So in our world, tolerance is evil. Now, 20 years ago, tolerance was the thing. Now tolerance is evil. It's all because other views are dangerous and you've got to not listen to them. You've got to stop them. You've got to silence people. Otherwise, you're not safe. And that's part of what it means to live in a post-truth world. Because my truth, your truth, so often matters far more to us than the truth. And, of course, as I said, speaking the truth is a powerful tool for genuine victims, speaking the truth from the victim's point of view. But as a mantra for our entire society, it's hopelessly inadequate. If, if my truth is my most powerful tool and your truth is your most powerful tool, then what actually happens is that it stops being about truth at all and it becomes about power. The one who can tell the best story, the one who can paint themselves as the biggest victim, the one who can maybe paint themselves as the greatest res rescuer as well, will win. And what you end up with is sort of a gladiatorial arena of victims fighting each other to death. So what might the Bible have to say about these things? I'm going to take you back to the early days of the church. Jesus had been born, lived, claimed to be the way, the truth, the life. He died on the cross. He'd risen from the dead. He'd appeared to his disciples. He'd given them proof. He'd ascended to heaven. He'd poured out his spirit. He's made sure his gospel message was being preached to many people from different tribes and nations. And the good news was preached and heard and believed by so many people and was bringing hope and was bringing peace, peace with God, peace with one another. Through the work of God's spirit, it changed hearts and lives and whole communities. It's still doing the same today. The Apostle Paul was a key part of that work. One of the letters he wrote was Ephesians. And Ephesians, in many ways, is all about truth. You can learn a lot from Ephesians about the reality and impact of truth. In fact, very early in Ephesians, in chapter 1, verse 13, Paul labels the gospel message itself. He says, what's the gospel message? He says, it's the word of truth. Chapter 1, verse 13. Why does he call the gospel the word of truth? Because it tells us the truth. And it's a truth that stands above our own truth. The truth about God, the truth about the world, the truth about ourselves. It tells us we've been rescued from the futile life of this world, from our sins. We've been rescued from God's wrath. We've been rescued from the control of all the powers of this world, in heaven and on earth. That we've been completely forgiven through Jesus Christ's death for us. We've been given a new life with Christ, entirely through God's love and grace rather than our own efforts. And we are safe. We are secure in him, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And we look forward to the time when God will complete his plans. Jesus will return and bring about a whole new creation. And that's a wonderful message for us all. It stands above us all. And it's not just that, that gospel message. It is, a, it is truth. And it's not just a general vibe. It's not just a nice religious feeling. It, it can't be tamed by our personal ideas or feelings or, or bent to suit our own purposes. 
The truth of the gospel is not ultimately about your truth or my truth. Because as Paul says, chapter 4, verse 21, the truth is in Jesus. And that concept of truth comes through again and again in Ephesians. It's a letter packed full of truth and its implications. And that truth defines us and tells us who we are as believers in Christ Jesus. It transforms how we live and how we relate and how we speak. And it helps us to see what our truth is to be in light of this great truth. And it's wonderful. That gospel truth gives, brings belief and faith in Jesus. But believing in Jesus, it's not, it's not just an abstract intellectual exercise. It certainly involves uh, truth. Uh, but believing in the truth must have a deep impact on our lives. That's why Paul says that the truth is actually something to be learned and taught. Uh, that's what he says uh, in verses 20 to 24 of Ephesians chapter 4. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And for Christians, learning the truth is about learning to know Christ and learning to shape our lives around him. Uh, this is this is the, uh, the the kind of language that Paul's using here is the language of learning and teaching, uh, do you see? Uh, quite a few teachers here, I've discovered, as I've been here. Uh, learning and teaching. Notice what's learning and teaching um, here about. Uh, teaching is about enabling people to see themselves in light of this greater truth. Uh, and it is actually about transformation, not just affirmation, which I'm sure you know as a teacher. Uh, it's not just saying you're okay. It's actually saying you're safe to change. For Christians, that's what learning the truth is about too. Uh, Paul describes our Christian lives in terms of getting dressed, taking off the old humanity, putting on the new, repenting, aligning our lives more and more with the truth that is in Jesus. And that's why learning the truth isn't just about learning facts. It's about changing our minds and our hearts. It's about growth. It's about admitting when our own truth is wrong. And growth can be uncomfortable and challenging, but we actually, as, as students of the gospel, don't need to hide from this kind of growth because we know we're safe. We're safe to change. Safe in the knowledge that God loves us and our future is secure in Jesus. So when we're confronted with the truth and challenged to change, we don't have to hide and we don't have to deceive ourselves. We don't have to sort of retreat into a desperate narcissistic attempt to, to hold on to our own goodness and to go, yeah, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. Because no, because we're safe in him. We don't have to force other people to keep affirming us. And to say, I'll only feel safe if you tell me I'm okay. We don't need to be fragile students constantly asking the question, am I safe, before entering every lesson of the gospel. We can say, in Jesus, I know I'm safe. Now let me learn and grow and be formed and transformed. Give me those new clothes to put on. You can see how much this truth changes us. And that truth about Jesus isn't just something for isolated individual believers. Jesus Death and resurrection brings about reconciliation. Reconciliation with God, reconciliation, peace with one another. The truth about Jesus destroys tribalism, the bringing together of different races and tribes together. That's what Paul's talking about in the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. So that word of truth creates a whole new 
community in Christ, God's people, the church. In Ephesians, the church is often described as Christ's body. It's that diverse yet united community, different people, together, secure in Christ, forgiven, broken, yet being transformed, growing and maturing in the knowledge of Christ. And encoded in every cell in this body, in the very DNA, is one critical activity that enables it to grow, and that is speaking the truth in love. What Paul says in Ephesians 4, 14 to 16, I'll read it. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So just before Paul says the phrase speaking the truth in love, he describes its opposite, did you see? The opposite is false teaching, or literally false doctrine. The word doctrine just means teaching. Same word. And it's false. Why is it false? For two reasons. It's false because it doesn't reflect the truth about Jesus, and it's false because it comes from false motives, human cunning, craftiness in deceitful schemes. False teachers have false intentions. They're not speaking. They're not seeking to draw people to Christ, but to catch us up in some other concern, other human concern of their own making. Draw people to themselves. Draw people uh, to their own concern. To call people after their own tribe. But then, after describing false teaching, Paul goes on to speak, describe the members of Christ's body as speaking the truth in love. He's saying that we believers should be living and speaking in a way that's constantly informed by the key truth that matters. The truth, speaking the truth, informed by the gospel, which involves speaking the gospel, speaking about the implications of the gospel, speaking in a gospel-shaped way. Now, Paul doesn't simply say here that we are to speak the truth full stop. He says we are to speak the truth in love. And what does love mean? Well, it always comes back to that particular amazing love, the love that comes from God, God's love that in Ephesians chapter 1 undergirds his eternal plans for us. In chapter 2, it stands behind his mercy in rescuing us and raising us with Christ. Christ himself, chapter 5, loved us when he sacrificed himself for us, dying for our sins, This love of Christ should change everything about our lives. When we grasp how wide and high and vast this love is, it provides an anchor and grounding for our lives. Ephesians chapter 3. Love should characterize our lives as God's children. Knowing the love of Christ causes us to live lives of love for others because we're secure in his love. And here Paul's saying that God's love brings us into that whole sphere of loving relationships, the body of Christ, where we live out that sacrificial and loving and costly love with others. So so speaking the truth in love is a package deal. It's not a seesaw, speaking the truth in love. What I mean by that is it's not like there's two competing principles. It's not as if you know, you've got gospel truth on one hand, here's truth, and then you've got love on the other hand, and you weigh them up against each other. You try and balance them out. You, know? you, you can't say things like, well, we've had enough truth for a while. Let's, let's get, you know, now we need more love. Or vice versa. You know, we need, now we need a bit more truth, a bit less love. You know, it just doesn't work that way. Truth and love go together. 
Gospel truth is to be spoken in loving relationships formed by the gospel of God's love for us. And so gospel truth without gospel love is a mockery of the truth because the the gospel is all about God's love for us. And also so-called love without gospel truth is not gospel love. If we think we're loving someone by just putting aside the truth of the gospel, the truth about God's love for us through Jesus and saving us from sin and rescuing us from death and raising us with Christ, then we're not being true and actually we're not being loving either, according to the Bible. Uh, The idea of love in our society is defined differently, isn't it? You, You love someone by making sure that you never hurt their feelings, by affirming them no matter what. That's not gospel love. That's a different definition of the word. The word doesn't mean that in the Bible. And speaking the truth in love is why church matters so much. It's why regularly meeting with God's people as you're doing gives us the opportunities to speak the truth in love. We need church together because church is the place where we, in a real concrete way, speak the truth in love to one another. You can't do what Ephesians says without church. That's how Christ's body works and grows. Christ's body is growing up. It's not just growing up, it's growing outward. Speaking the truth in love isn't just an activity for insiders. As we speak the truth in love, we can expect more people to to come to hear the truth of the gospel, to believe in it, to be added to the body of Christ. We do that together. And truth is foundational to who we are as Christians. That means that truth needs to permeate our relationships, and especially our speech. That's why Paul says in uh, chapter 4, verse 25, he says, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood, And speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. We belong to Christ together. So truth has to permeate our lives and the way we relate to each other. It's meant to have a profound impact on those around us as well. What does it mean to speak the truth to our neighbour? Well, again, it starts with the key truths of the gospel. We, we, We speak what is true about the gospel to one another. We've been doing that this weekend. It's been wonderful to, to see and to share in. But it's not just about rehearsing gospel facts. It doesn't stop there. It involves applying the word of truth, the gospel, to all our interactions. And so it means just being truthful in everything we say to others. For example, the the gospel tells us the truth about ourselves, that we are saved sinners. Even though sin doesn't control us anymore, it still affects us. So we should not deliberately hide our sin from one another, make ourselves out to be better than we are, That's a form of lying. (laughs) Instead, speaking the truth means recognising when we're wrong and apologising when necessary. So speaking the truth one another rules out the kind of things we often do to try to avoid or airbrush the truth, the kind of thing that we see in Genesis chapter 3. Speaking the truth to one another rules out manipulation and impression management, questioning motives, sowing confusion, editing the narrative, playing the victim, Denying consequences, smuggling half-truths, breaking trust, covering shame, shifting blame. They're all deeply damaging to the body of Christ. And the gospel also enables us to rightly and appropriately point out areas where others are not living in line with the truth of the gospel. To encourage them to become more like God in the way they think and act. Of course, we need to do that always humbly, knowing that we're all sinners and in ways that build people up, people up in encouragement and in love, as Paul goes on to say, uh, that kind of you know, helping people to, to grow 
and, and pointing things out that needs to happen sparingly in the context of good and appropriate relationships. But just keep remembering that loving, being loving, doesn't mean avoiding saying hard things. Sometimes out of love we need to speak hard truths, and that's okay. And on the flip side, even more so as Christians, we need to receive that and be open to it. We don't need to be afraid of receiving loving criticism because we know we're safe, we're secure in Christ. We're in the business of transformation, not just affirmation. It's good to develop habits when it comes to the truth. And that involves um, taking truth seriously, even in the daily interactions of life. So here's, here's a few ideas. Uh, and what the, what the great thing is that, is that a number of those, these ideas I've actually seen in action over this weekend, even this morning. It's just been really great. So here's, here's some ideas. In your relationships and conversations, it's worth deliberately stopping every so often to ask yourself, are you being really truthful in what you say, even in the small things? Now, if you find yourself frequently telling little white lies to make yourself look good better or to achieve some other goal, you might want to gently correct yourself in the conversation. You, know, you, you say something and then you, you might say, well, actually, no, that's not quite true. <laughs> just to correct yourself. There's a little habit to get into. Another habit is to keep remembering that through Jesus, God is present with us by his Holy Spirit. And God's presence with us means that he really cares about our words. One of the reasons that we tell little white lies is that we think words are cheap. We think no one really cares about them. Or we think maybe words are there as just tools for us to use to achieve other ends. But no, our words are precious. They're precious for other people. They're precious for God himself. You see verses 29 and 30. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs so that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. When Paul says no corrupting talk, he says it's not just talking about foul language. Foul language is one example. He's talking about words of slander and, and gossip, things that undermine, make things rotten, words of bragging, words of humble bragging. <laughs> you know the humble brag? <laughs> trying to make yourself look better. Sniping words, bitter words and more. And fundamental to it all is that, that falsehood of verse 25. The words that come out of our mouths should be good for building, Paul says. Each word that we speak is like a brick in a building. A good brick that should play its part in God's purposes of building his people through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And fundamental to all of that is the speaking the truth in love. So we don't often think that way. Uh, when we too often when we speak or when we type or when we you know, tap online, we don't think about how the words that come out of our mouths or the words that come out of our fingers are meant to build others up through truth and love. So deliberately reflecting on our words and pausing is a great habit to develop in our conversations, in person, as well as online. God's Holy Spirit with whom we are sealed and who dwells in us cares deeply about the way we use our words. And that's why the Holy Spirit is grieved if we don't use our words for building by speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love is an incredibly powerful thing in our post-truth world. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul goes on to say that truth is like light. Remember right in the beginning of John chapter 1? It's a true light that comes into the world. Well, Paul's got it there in Ephesians 5. It's like light. And what does light do? 
It exposes darkness and corruption. Living as a community of truth is fundamental to helping prevent abuse. Because if we're truthful, then it makes it so much harder for abusers to hide. Close to the end of his letter, Paul even describes truth as one of the critical pieces of armour in our battle against spiritual forces. Truth isn't just about raw power, but the truth that is in Jesus is powerful. And that's a truth that needs to be shared with others as well, isn't it? We'll come back and look at more of those things uh, after morning tea. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for the truth that is in Jesus, your Son. We praise you for sending him into our world and we praise you for uh, the way that you have drawn us to be his body. Graciously, by your Spirit, draw us more and more to speak the truth in love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.